presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is nurse practitioner Mimi Secor. Research indicates the use of alcohol, ecstasy, and marijuana are increasing among teenagers. In addition, more teens than ever are getting high on prescription pain pills and attention deficit disorder medications. In fact, one in five teenagers, that's 20% of the United States high school students, has taken a prescription drug without a prescription. Summer is a particularly problematic time as there is a significant increase in underage drinking, marijuana use, and cigarette smoking among teenagers during these months. You're listening to the monthly specialty series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host, and with me today is psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner Kim Comparetto, who works in the adolescent inpatient unit at Spring Harbor Hospital in Westbrook, Maine. And today we are discussing substance abuse among teenagers in the United States. Welcome, Kim. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Mimi, for having me. As we look at this issue, what are you seeing are the trends across the country and also in your practice in Maine in terms of teenagers and substance abuse? I think the statistics that you presented are an example of the trends that we're seeing, uh, particularly trends in younger children actually using prescription medications and abusing them. The CDC puts out a youth risk behavior survey about every four years, and for the first time in 2009, they asked about abusing prescription drugs and 5.1% of 12-year-olds admitted to abusing prescription medication. In addition, I find it an alarming trend that today's parents are less likely to talk to their teenagers about using substances. And one of the reasons teens cite for avoiding substance abuse is because they don't want to displease their parents. So when we look at some of the indicators, particularly the subtle indicators of substance abuse in teenagers, what are some of the early warning signs? When it comes to the subtle indicators, I want to always question mental illness. Teenagers who abuse substances are 41 to 65% more likely to have a coexisting mental illness. So you're going to want to watch for any changes in behaviors, and you're going to hear me repeat this over and over again. Parents need to know their teenagers so they are aware when there is any change from their usual patterns of behaviors. There are obvious signs and symptoms, certainly, like dilated pupils and odor of alcohol or marijuana. You might find your child is more defensive when you question them about where they've been. They might be secretive about letting you into their room. You could see a loss of interest in usual activities, greater irritability. You might see trouble paying attention or forgetfulness. You said you really like angry teenagers. That really caught my attention. You really like to work with angry teenagers. I mean, I always think, most teenagers are that way. So what's sort of different about these signs? That's the dilemma. Part of being a teenager is that your emotions are all over the place and you can be irritable. I tend to like the angry girls like we talked about because I don't take them as seriously as they want to be taken. And I can kind of find if you can kind of roll with that anger, you can eventually come to some sort of engagement and actually get them to open up and tell you what's really going on. What do you think are some of the biggest risk factors for drug abuse among teenagers? I mean, you've mentioned a few, just others that we can watch for as clinicians. I hear drugs are everywhere and they're easy to get. I hear this from, you know, 12-year-olds through 20-year-olds. 
So, again, look at the home environment. What's the attitude about drugs and alcohol in the home? Do parents use drugs and alcohol? Because the old adage, do as I say and not as I do, just doesn't fly. Transitions, junior high to high school, moving, parents divorcing, breakup in a relationship, these are risk factors. I find with girls especially, bullying and teasing, and this often happens after hours, computer, cell phone in the room, that's when a lot of this bullying and teasing goes on. Parents have got to know what their children are doing. If the teenagers in the home aren't supervised by the parents, they might find it more easy to get away with engaging in substance abuse behavior. Kim, can you help us understand how, as clinicians or parents, we can access the possibility of our teenagers being bullied if it's happening on social media or on cell phones or Facebook, which we may not be privy to? I would again ask the parents to have access to their child's Facebook, MySpace accounts. They don't need a computer in their room. They don't need to have their cell phone after 9 p.m. The parents need to be really good at setting clear limits and boundaries and monitor, monitor, monitor what their child is doing and who they're doing it with. So what are the mental health issues that seem to be associated with substance abuse, Kim, that are either precipitating or resulting from the substance abuse? Any mental health diagnosis puts a teen at risk for abusing substances. You might see symptoms of anxiety, depression, crying spells, clingy, not wanting to go to school. You want to see for any signs of emerging mental illness. If a child is going to develop a thought disorder like schizophrenia, it's called prodromal symptoms. These are insidious and subtle by their very nature. So it's very hard to live in the house with a person 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and notice this. So, you know, Friends who don't visit very often, gee, Johnny is like sitting in his room wearing dirty clothes. So it's very subtle, very insidious. So the better the parents know their teens, the more likely they are going to identify when there is any change from baseline. And are young teenage girls, Kim, more at risk in any special way, would you say? Teenage girls tend to have more internalizing disorders like depression and kind of hold it all inside. Obviously not all teenage girls because some of them are very good at expressing their anger, but boys tend to be more out there with it. I also find that girls, like any other teenager, they want to be popular, they want to fit in, they want to feel accepted, and if that involves using drugs and alcohol, they're more likely to do that, which puts them more at risk for being victimized, having risky sex being raped during a blackout. I've worked with many young girls, 12 and 14-year-olds, who tell me about blacking out using substances and then finding out that they had been raped, or actually dating drug dealers to have easy access to the drugs or exchanging sex for drugs. So how can clinicians and parents help teenagers to avoid substance abuse and these situations, Kim? I think it's important for parents to know that most kids mean well. Their brains just aren't developed. They, by their very nature, are going to engage in impulsive, risky behaviors. They are going to look for the thrill. They are not adults. They can't be expected to make adult decisions. We need to help them see around the corners. So parents can set clear limits and boundaries in the home. The consequences need to be immediate and predictable. Children have to know how far they can go and that their parent is going to be there to stop them. So these are really parenting lessons. We're going to talk about that in a short while here, Kim. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the monthly specialty series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. 
I'm your host, nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Kim Comparetto, and we're discussing trends in substance abuse among teenagers in the United States. So, Kim, can you share with us a few more very brief parenting lessons that we can remind our patients and parents about as clinicians? I can. One of the things that parents can do to reduce the risk of teenagers abusing their own medications are to keep all medicines locked up, discard unused medications. Kids can overdose on ibuprofen or Tylenol. Be aware that teenagers often abuse cold medications. It's a little harder now because drugstores are keeping them locked up. They also, the younger children will go for inhalants and huffing is a big problem. So keep track of your computer cleaners your gasoline, your kerosene, they will huff whatever they can get their hands on. What can we do as parents and also clinicians if we suspect a teenager is abusing drugs? Are there any special kinds of history tools or techniques we can use for screening? Well, for the parent, know the facts. Because if you are just going in with a suspicion, you're going to be engaging in a yes, you did, no, I didn't exchange, and that's going to get nowhere. So parents want to have the facts. You've missed school three times this week. You've been rude and disrespectful to me on X, Y, and Z days. So if you can come up with some facts to present and confront the teenager with, that's what parents can do. For clinicians, there is a structured interview called the CRAFFT craft, and that is a very short five-minute interview that can be administered. We use it here in the hospital, and it's basically wanting to know, have the teen ridden in a car, driven by someone who is high, used alcohol or drugs to relax, used alcohol or drugs when alone, forgetting what you did while you were under the influence, family or friends telling you should cut down, or have you gotten into trouble? In 2010, primary care providers administering this screen found that one in four tested positive. Wow, that's really, really high. It sounds like an easy tool to use. Can you go online and Google the craft? You can go online and Google it. It's from a Children's Hospital. Okay, great. Is it ever okay, Kim, for parents to supply their teenagers with alcohol or other illegal substances? I know years ago it was very okay and when I was a teenager. It was. So I'm going to say today the short answer is no. And then I did a one-person survey and heard that in Europe, where it is acceptable to drink a glass of wine with a meal, the children tend to know more what it feels like to get a little bit buzzed, and then they don't engage in binge drinking behaviors like a lot of kids in the United States do. But as far as hosting graduation parties and, and supplying alcohol, there's a public service announcement a while back that said, parents who host lose the most. So no. Yeah, that's a good catchy one. Parents that host lose the most. I like that. Can you share briefly with us what motivational interviewing is and how it might help us to assess the risk for substance abuse in teenagers? Is this something that we as clinicians might use? Motivational interviewing is used in all settings. There are studies that show that this is a good way to engage with a teenager or an adult to assess their level of motivation. Are they ready to change? I kind of look at myself and ask myself now, how motivated am I to change any aspect of not exercising and going to the gym? I'm very motivated. (laughs) So if I'm going to ask myself, why isn't my number a five instead of a 10? I want to be more healthy. I want to lower my cholesterol. I want to have more energy. So if you ask them, why isn't the number lower? They will come up with motivation for change rather than the other way around, you're going to get excuses for why the number isn't higher. So what you want to do is engage with the patient, emphasize in how miserable they are, really get in there with them, 
Ask them about what are the pros and cons, what are the good things and the bad things about using substances, and just kind of roll with the resistance. If, if they're resistant, hang in there. Keep asking, why do you want to change? What's good about this? What's bad about this? It's a very effective tool for interviewing. Thank you so much, Kim, for being on the show today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me, Nini. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also a very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing, and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample we determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-Igeronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.